You're listening to Hebrews to Revelation, Lesson 7. These online lectures and study guides have been created to provide listeners all over the world the opportunity to receive theological resources online for free. If you are benefiting from these worldwide classroom lectures, please consider supporting this free ministry. Click on the Give Now button on our homepage, worldwide-classroom.com. Thank you very much for your support. Hebrews 5 and 6. As is so often the case, there is a sense in which Hebrews is moving seamlessly. Chapter 4, verses 14 to 16 is closed by, is closing the section of chapters 3 and 4, but it's also opening the section in chapter 5. We, we go straight from the idea that Jesus is, um, is the high priest who passed through the heavens and he's merciful and graceful, straight into chapter 5, which talks more about Jesus as our high priest. And it describes him as uh, he is in himself, but also describes him in comparison to human priests. Now, the book of Hebrews, I want to tell you, has a kind of a, a love of um, a love of wordplay and a love of intricate structures and so forth. And one of them is right here in front of us. I'm going to ask you to just kind of watch. It's called a chiasm. A chiasm is when you uh, have a structure that, that has inversions to it. And so what we're going to find is that he's going to make four points, and then he's going to make four points again, but he's going to make them in reverse order. Okay? Four, one, two, three, four. Four, three, two, one. Uh, describing Jesus as our priest. Point one about human priests. Chapter 5, verse 1. Priests are taken from men. Every high priest is selected from among men and appointed to represent them. And number two, priests have solidarity with the people. He sa it says he's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is subject to, to weakness. As they show solidarity, they do a couple things. They offer sacrifices for the sins of men, but they also deal gently with those who stray, because they know what it's like to stray. Uh, verse 3, therefore they offer sacrifices both for the people and for themselves. And number four, they don't take this on themselves. They're appointed by God. And that's a human priest. Then Jesus says, you know, then Hebrews says, Jesus is like these human priests, but more, and he does it 4, 3, 2, 1. Uh, just as a priest did not take pre uh, the priesthood to himself, so Jesus did not take it to himself. Verses 5 and 6 say, the Lord said, you are my son, my priest forever. Jesus didn't take it to himself. You are my son. I've made you my father. Uh, next, he says in verse 7 that Jesus offered sacrifices for the people. Now, it said earlier that a human priest offers sacrifices for himself and for the people. But now it says Jesus only for the people because he didn't have to offer for himself. And it slips a little something in there. And that is that Jesus offered up prayers and petitions. The, the reason why that slipped in there is to say is because the Jews in Jesus' day thought of prayers as a kind of sacrifice, a sacrifice of the lips. So Jesus did offer two sacrifices in a way, one for sin of his people, and the other was the sacrifice of his lips. But he didn't have to offer a sacrifice for his own sins. The next one now, we're 4-3-2, he also has solidarity with his people. He also learned obedience through what he suffered. We'll talk about that in a moment. And he is given the title of high priest by God. He's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So he's like a human priest, four traits, but in every trait he's, he's like them, but just a little bit higher on each score. Now, what these verses do, what this passage uh, does, is... Uh, start to introduce us to the way in which Jesus works with his people. It starts off, let me go back, that's kind of an overview I just gave him, let me go back over it again, and, and notice that priests offer sacrifices and gifts. Those are the two things they offer. Old Testament, they offer gifts, that's to say thanksgiving and praise to God and fellowship with God, and they offer sacrifices, that's for sins. Two kinds of offering in the Old Testament. Sacrifice for sin and also praising God and expressing gratitude to him for his bounty. So that's the first thing they do. The second thing they do, and I want to focus on this one a little bit longer, is that they deal gently, verse 2, they deal gently with those who stray in ignorance. Verse 2. 
They deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray, it says in verse 2. Now, what this is, this is actually another one of his little rhetorical flourishes. It's called, if you like, a hendiatus. And if you don't like it, it's still called that. But uh, the point is making, making two out of one. And the idea is not that they stray and are ignorant, but they stray in ignorance. There's two ideas put together. A priest, it is the job of a priest to deal gently with those who stray in ignorance. Let me illustrate. Yesterday, my youngest daughter was uh, unloading the dishwasher. And she has seen me and her sisters and her mother, especially probably me, unload the dishwasher, sort of you know, grabbing three or four dishes at once. You stick your fingers in, you, you, know, you pull out a stack. And although I do not have large hands, you know, that's really not a hard thing for me. Well, she tried to do the same thing and stuck her fingers in and pulled out you know, a stack of three small dishes, and you know what happened. You know, they all fell, and one of them broke. And she was, you know, looked up, and everybody heard the crash, and, you know, immediately kind of, you know, looking sad and maybe on the verge of tears, depending on what mommy or daddy would say. And I asked her a question. I said, honey, has anybody ever told you you shouldn't do that? And she said, no, I was just, you know, I was just trying it. I said, okay, you broke a dish, but, that, but you weren't naughty. You didn't disobey. She sinned in ignorance, right? Now, I went on to say, you know, break a dish, you might as well get something out of the money wasted and, you know, get a teaching experience out of it. So I said, now, let me ask you another question. Which would be, you've got to seize it when you can, because she was all ears. Which would be worse, I asked her. To, to not know you were doing a wrong thing, and, but still do a wrong thing, and break a dish, do a foolish thing and break a dish? Or would, it be, would that be worse? Or would it be worse if you knew you weren't supposed to do that, and you did it anyway, but you didn't break any dishes? Which would be worse? She said, it would be worse if I took it when I've been told not to, even if nothing broke. And I said, you're absolutely right. Because a sin in, of ignorance is very different from a deliberate act of disobedience. Breaking something by accident, and this is a tip for you parents, you, know, you don't evaluate your children's actions on their consequences. Evaluate them on their essence. That's how you do it, right? And that's the way God, uh, the reason why I know that is because that's the way God treats us as his children. He is gentle and tells the priest to be gentle with those who go astray. Uh, by the way, this little word, deal gently, is, um, is kind of a special word. It's, in Greek, it's metriopathane, which means, uh, you know the word pathetic and pathos? It's from those words. Um, the Stoics in this day said, whatever comes, you must respond with apathase, which you can hear as apathy, that is to say, not in the sense of apathy, boredom or ennui or something, but apathy in a sense of not responding with passion, not being moved. The Stoics said, whatever fate gives you, you accept that, and you don't, you, know, you don't rejoice, you don't grieve, you just accept that you have to fit into life. But the author of Hebrews, with the rest of the Bible, says, no, apathy is wrong, really. Uh, what you need is to respond in a measured way to what happens in life. You don't explode, but you're not indifferent either. And especially with an ignorant sin, you give a gentle, you deal with it, but you deal with it gently. That's the point that he is making here. That's chapter 3, chapter 5, and verse 2. Now he goes on uh, to talk a little bit more about the work of a priest, and especially the work of Jesus as priest. In the following verses, he also says that Jesus, as priest, didn't take it to himself. And as priest, in fact, uh, fulfilled God's work and did it, even offering up, verses 7 and 8, prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Now, verse 7, what do you think that's referring to? What historical event are we talking about here? It's talking about the Garden of Gethsemane. He offered up loud tears, petitions, pleading. Was he heard? He was heard. But he suffered anyway, didn't he? 
And this is, again, so vital for the Hebrews and vital for us to hear that it is possible to pray with all your might and be heard because you're loved and still have to suffer. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about. Enduring suffering, whether you know that's God's will and what to do with it. And the answer is, you can be perfectly obedient, perfectly heard. The Father can hear every word you're saying. But as for Jesus, so also for you, you may yet have to suffer. They needed to hear that. We need to hear that. Verse 8 goes on to say, Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, became the eternal source of salvation for those who obey him. And what does this mean that he learned obedience by what he suffered? Did Jesus not know how to obey? Was there some deficiency in Jesus? Again, no. But rather, we would say he, he learned it from the inside. How many of you here have ever dislocated a shoulder or something like that? How many of you have seen it happen? Okay, I've seen it happen. It never happened to me. I've seen it happen, and I want to tell you, I don't want it to happen to me. Pretty bad. Not fun. Really painful. I've also, I also saw people break ankles. And that, you know, happened, or sprained ankles and so forth. So that happened a couple of times. Really bad. And then one day it happened to me. And then I really knew it was bad. Because I knew it from the inside. Or like the flu. You know the flu. You watch the flu. You see. And then, and then unfortunately, sometimes we learn about the flu from the inside. Or Adam and Eve knew about rebellion against God in a way. But then after they rebelled, they learned about it in another way. They learned about it experientially. Now, I'm speaking analogically to you. I don't think we can fathom the sense in which Jesus learned or the way in which the mind of God operates. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that the text says, and we have to always be loyal to what the Word of God actually says, that he learned obedience. And this is maybe part of what was going on, that he came into flesh and blood to experience it in flesh and blood. And so he is able to perfectly, again, atone, and also perfectly able to understand what happened to us. Now, the author of Hebrews is about ready to get revved up here. And he's about ready to get revved up on the theme of great interest to him, the theme of the high priestly ministry of Christ. His, this eternal salvation that he's just mentioned in verse 9. In verse 10, he was designated to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. But he's worried. He's worried that his people aren't listening to him. Now, I know that this, this possibility of, of not listening is almost incomprehensible to you. Since you are all just full of vivacity and energy, and the fact that you've been up since 6 or 5 this morning, and you worked, you know, maybe 11 hours before coming here, had no impact, has no impact whatsoever on your ability to stay bright and alert all through evening school here and in any other class at the seminary. I know that you have a hard time identifying with this, but I'm going to ask you to try, okay? It is actually possible for people to not pay attention. And when people don't pay attention, it's hard for the teacher to proceed. Now, of course, here we're not talking about folks who are sleepy, but a different kind of not paying attention. There are actually three kinds of, of sin that make it difficult. This is what he's really worried about. He's really worried that they aren't going to pay attention because of their sin. They've been falling down or falling apart as Christians. And so they're not ready for the advanced teaching he's about to give them. Listen to verses 11 to 14 as I read them to you. We have much to say about this, this high priestly ministry of Christ. But it's hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves 
to distinguish good from evil. Let me just read a little bit more. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instructions about baptisms, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment, and God permitting we will do so. And what he's saying is, Chapter 5, verse 2 pointed out that some people stray in ignorance, right? And we should be merciful toward them. But they're straying in a different way. They're straying through negligence. They're straying, they're becoming undiscerning, they're becoming, un, they're becoming forgetful, they're stuck on the fundamentals, so that when it's time to now move into some meaty teaching about the high priestly ministry of Christ... He thinks maybe they're not up to it. Not because they've been sitting for a long time in a class, because they haven't been growing as Christians. As Christians, they've been content to stick with a few fundamentals. And now, uh, they're virtually infants. They're not progressing to becoming leaders and teachers. He says in verse 14 what it takes. He says, if you want to be mature want to be able to handle the higher teaching, you've got to use it. Solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish. You want to know how to get sharper as a Christian? He's saying, still applies today, tackle some difficult questions. I heard a motto, one preacher a long time ago chose for himself, I have not shirked the difficult questions. That's a good motto if you want to be a leader. Go after the hard things, and the easy things will seem easier still, right? But they've done just the opposite. Uh, so that they are unable to move forward. Now, in a minute, we're going to get to another group, a group who are in danger of committing apostasy. And it's helpful to, just, to see that we need to distinguish these three groups. There's, there's the group that sins in ignorance. There's the group that is sinning because of long-term lethargy which is different from accidental sin. It's saying, I don't really care, don't bother me, I'm advanced enough. As one person said, you know, you make it seem like being a Christian is so serious. Could you, you, know, could you just lighten up a little? It's kind of, isn't it kind of an easy thing, just kind of loving God and being happy? So, well, you know, that's part of it. But, but there's more to it than that, you know. So they've been lazy and indifferent. The third thing is deliberate violations. If I could go to the traffic world for a moment. And a, and a sin of ignorance would be if you go to Great Britain or, you know, a Caribbean island or to India and you drive on the right side of the road. That's wrong. Don't do that. It'll cause an accident. But, you know, you'll pull out in your car and you'll be driving in the right lane for a second and say, why is that guy coming at me in the right? Oh, well, I'm, I'm in, you know, I'm in England. You better get over in the left lane. That's a sin of ignorance. And a second sin, a sin of indifference, would be like, habitually speeding in St. Louis or whatever city you're in. You know, you get in the habit, 40-mile-an-hour speed limit, well, I'll go 48, you know. And 30-mile-an-hour speed limit, well, I'll go 39. And 60, well, I'll go 67. Well, you know, that sort of works because you know the police only pull people over and they're going 10 miles over the speed limit. But if you're, if you're set on 67 and 60 and then you're not paying attention, a really great song comes on the radio, you know, and you don't have cruise control because your car's kind of old. Then if you don't watch out, you know, you're just kind of moving your foot a little bit. And, and uh, hey, I'm up to 74 miles an hour. And the police are pulling me over. Maybe, maybe you know, that's happened to you. Possibly. And the point is, by being indifferent to the traffic laws for a while, it's possible to go really wrong, right? The third group would be like somebody who says, if I just turn down this street, it's, yes, it's a one-way street going the other way, but if I just quick hurry down this street, it'll save me four minutes. That's deliberate violation. And you know, if somebody does that once, they've probably done it 5, 10, 15, you know, red light, nobody's looking, I'll just go on through, right? That's a deliberate violation. Uh, that is the trio uh, of possible ways of going wrong in traffic and in theology. So you can learn. as You, you can learn theology as you drive around the city. At least you can meditate on theology. You can give me a report on this next week, see how this helps you understand your driving patterns for next week. Okay. 
Uh, chapter 6, verse 1, he wants to proceed. He wants to move forward. By the way, along this idea of the, uh, you know, the theme of, of looking at God's work in us, if I can quibble, it seems like I do it about once every chapter or so, uh, quibble with the NIV again. He says in 6.1, it says in the NIV, Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity. You see that little thing, go on to maturity? Actually, the, the original in the Greek is, let us be carried on to maturity. That's what it actually says. Not let us go as if it's our responsibility. But rather, God is working. Let us be carried. Be carried by whom? Be carried by God. Uh, when you have, a, if I can be slightly technical again, when you have a passive verb like that, let us be carried, in almost every language it specifies by, let us be carried by, or how it's going to happen, what the agent is. When it's not, in the New Testament, actually 150 times, the agent is not specified. That's called the divine passive. When the agent is not specified, you presume that the agent is God. Because God is, you know, if you don't know who does it, it's God. But also, in those days, they tried to avoid using the name of God because of the fear of, of uh, taking it in vain. And so that's, that's why they did that. So chapter 6, verse 1 says, let us be carried on to maturity and, and uh, get beyond these basics. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this list of basics, it's kind of a baffling list, at least to me. Uh, not all these basics are what I would call basic. Um, the idea of, okay, repentance and, and, uh, from acts that leads to death and faith, okay, that's basic. But how basic are, would instruction in baptisms be? Or it could be translated instructions in washings. Here's what's going on. Uh, what he's talking about, these points he's making are all things he's going to talk about later. Faith is going to come up again in chapter 11, right? And uh, repentance from dead works is going to come up again in chapter 9, verse 14, especially. And washings that don't cleanse are part of the theme of chapters 9 and 10. Jesus really cleanses us with his blood. And the laying on of hands is probably an allusion to the idea that the Old Testament priests are ordained by laying on hands. And he's going to talk about Old Testament priesthood and how Jesus surpasses that. So what he's saying is, Really, the fundamentals are fundamentals of the Old Testament system. And you've got to know the basics, even if they don't seem very basic to you. You've got to know the basics, and, and then you can build. But he's saying, my problem is that I've got to explain everything to you, because you haven't been paying attention. Well, he still doesn't want to go on, but he's, he's still concerned about these people who aren't really ready to go with him. Verse 3 says, God permitting will do so, but he doesn't feel quite free to do that. He still wants to say another word to the people who are listening. And now we're in this third group. The first group are those who stray in ignorance. The second are those who are, who are lethargic. The third group are those who are really considering apostasy, who, are, who look like maybe they're going to abandon the faith, which is very, very different from a sin of ignorance. You can't abandon the faith by accident. Deliberate act. Now, this is one of the passages that makes, that makes everybody worry a little bit, right? Chapter 6, uh, verses 4, 5, and 6. Now, what I'm going to do here is translate this out of the uh, Greek New Testament. Maybe invite you to listen and also to read the NIV you'd like, or, uh, you know, maybe, I don't know, do whatever you want, but here goes. It starts off this way, for it is impossible for those who have been enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift, who have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the goodness of the age to come. And now, or and if they now fall away, to come again or to be restored again to repentance, since they are crucifying to themselves the Son of God and subjecting Him to disgrace. And the core idea, if you are listening to this, the core idea is. It is impossible to repent again. 
That's the basic root of the whole sentence. But now he's not just saying that. He's saying it's impossible for somebody to repent again. Who is that somebody? That somebody is marked by five traits. Trait number one is that they've been enlightened. Trait number two, they have tasted of the heavenly gift. Trait number three, these are all linked together. They're, not, they're all one. It's not like you can have one or two of them. They're all grouped. Trait number three is they become partakers of the Spirit. Trait number four is that they've tasted of the goodness of the Word of God. Trait five, they've tasted of the powers of the age to come. And now, if after all that, they fall away, the word fall away does not mean slip away or stumble a little bit, but the word fall away means to take a calculated and deliberate act of renouncing God and renouncing the faith. If you, do, if you taste all of that, those five things, and then you step away, not only step away, but say, I want no part of it, then it's impossible to come again to repentance. Why? Because you're re-crucifying Christ and humiliating him once again. Now, that's the basic statement. That's the basic uh, description here. And now, I've just told you what the passage says, but we're just getting started, aren't we? What's the great question that people have about this, about this passage? Who wants to articulate it? Can you lose your salvation? Is he saying that it is possible, in popular language, to be saved and then lost? Uh, now, I'm going I'm to put a... How many of you know, how many of you have ever heard the word Arminian in here? Okay, how many of you haven't? Okay, uh, there's probably some of you that don't want to admit it, okay. And Calvinist, has everybody heard the word Calvinist at least? Okay, who has never heard the word Calvinist? Okay, all right. Now, let me just uh, tell you very briefly. Arminians uh, historically say, of course, you can be saved and lost. And some people would think then that this passage is actually the favorite passage of Arminians because it seems to say you can be saved and lost. But the truth is, and I have to tell you, I talked to two Arminians today, okay? And they told me out of their own mouth, and I don't want to put anybody in this spot, but there are probably people in this classroom, I'm sure there are, who would, uh, you know, be inclined to say, I'm an Arminian, I believe it's possibly saved and lost. I am not an Arminian, I'm a Calvinist, just in case, you know, truth in advertising. <clears throat> um, you wonder, you know, where I'm going or what I believe. So I, I'm just telling you in advance where I'm going to come down, all right? Um, I hope I come down because I read the Bible that way, not just because I'm a Calvinist, because I, I'm searching the Scriptures. You would think, Calvinists would think, that this is the passage of passages for Arminians. But the truth is, Arminians are very uncomfortable with this passage too. Most of them are. Because it proves far too much for their system. What it says is, if you taste and so forth, it looks like if you become a Christian and then apostatize, then it is impossible to come again to repentance. But the whole Arminian system says, oh, not every Arminian, but almost Arminians, that you can be saved and lost and then saved again. This passage says you can never be saved again. So this, is not, this, is, this passage is not just difficult for Calvinists. Arminians don't like it either. At least that's what I hear from Arminians. That's what they tell me. That it unnerves them, and, and you know, Arminian seminaries, you know, they try to avoid it sometimes because it proves too much. Okay, what should we make of it? Uh, first of all, we have to ask the question, who is being described here? Uh, one answer, this is not exactly the way it's in your notes. Um, one answer is that this passage does not describe real Christians. But it describes people who have um, been around the church and... and uh, had a lot of Christian friends, a lot of near-Christian experiences, but they're not really Christians. And they would, they would read it like this. They'd say, well, this enlightened, it's complicated. I've never really understood it, to tell you the truth. That to, to be enlightened means to be baptized. And to taste means to participate in the Lord's Supper. And to be a partaker of the Holy Spirit means you've seen uh, the Holy Spirit at work. So this is talking about people who are baptized and have been, you know, confirmed or joined the church and have taken the sacraments and have, have really seen, we might say, God at work, and they've seen you know, the light and the truth and the word of God, but they never were really Christians. 
And so it's not talking about anybody who's saved at all. That's one view. Second view is, oh, yes, it is talking about people who are saved. Uh, What do you mean uh, this isn't about Christians? Uh, To be enlightened has nothing to do, and I believe this, by the way, with baptism. Where do you get that? Uh, The the word for enlightened, photizo, you know, like photography and so forth, uh, means to be instructed. That's, that's its ordinary meaning. To be enlightened means to have gotten the light of God's truth. To be enlightened is to have gotten the light of the gospel, the light of God's truth. Uh, and to taste of the heavenly gift. In the Bible, tasting doesn't mean nibbling or something like that. To taste means like taste and see the Lord is good. Experience the goodness of God. To taste in the Bible usually means to really experience something. And to partake of the Holy Spirit, to be a partaker, to be a participant. And the Holy Spirit, why, you know, to be a partaker and a participant, a sharer, is described in, in places like even the book of Hebrews, like chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 3, verse 14, to be a partaker is to be united. If you're a partaker in Christ, you belong to Christ. If you're a partaker in the Spirit, you belong to the Spirit. If you taste of the goodness of the Word of God, then, you know, that's kind of like First Peter chapter 2, verse 3, taste that the Lord is good. And we know if you taste... The Lord is good. I mean, that's a way of saying you're a Christian. And so, indeed, this passage is about Christians who then fall away, who apostatize, who cease to be Christians. Third view is that this is describing somebody from from a pastoral perspective. Remember, this is a book by a pastor to a congregation. From a pastoral perspective. So far as anyone can tell, by every appearance and every indication, they are Christians. They appear to be. They look like. They act like. They have to be treated as. But that doesn't necessarily mean they are Christians. Those are the three views of the matter. And I will tell you that... um, Would you want me to tell you right now what I think, or do you want me to... Keep going a little bit. Let me tell you right now. Keep going. How do you want me to tell you right now? Get it out. <laughs> um, he said it loudest. One person said it. So uh, I think that it is. I want to modify it. Be careful, but I do think it's it's point view three is what is correct. That is the person who, by every indication, now uh, after saying this, I want to keep going just for a minute. Uh, after saying this, he then moves on in verses 7 and 8. I'll kind of do a system on this a little bit later. Verse 7 and 8 say, Now land that drinks in rain often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receive the blessing of God. This is a little bit like, you know, a good tree bears good fruit, good soil bears good fruit, like the sower, parable of the sower, and so on. He's saying, you know, if you really are a Christian, a believer, good fruit will come. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Now, again, what we have here is a passage that looks like it should instill fear. A very stiff warning is to say, watch out lest you apostatize. But I want you to notice what comes next in the very next verse. The next verse says, it is uh, verse 9, Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown to him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. What's he just said? He's just said, I have warned, but did you notice the way in which the language of the warning was phrased or couched? It was all very impersonal. Look back over four, six, chapter 6, verses 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. It is impossible for those who. He didn't say it is impossible for you. He said, is it impossible for those who do all this? Right? He said, he did not say, you are like land that drinks in the rain and produces nothing. He said, land that drinks in the rain. He's laying out some principles. 
But as for them, he tells you very plainly what he expects of them. What he expects of them is better things. He expects them to persevere. He expects them to see things that accompany salvation. He expects them to show diligence and to, and to have God attend to them and, and carry them on and to recognize the love and the faith and the work that they've shown in times past. Uh, what I'm saying then is this. Different views of the way this passage can be taken. One view can be called, I think I call it in your notes, the rigorous view. And that is, once you become a Christian, do I have it described that way in your notes? No. Okay. I just called it the rigorous position. Um, the one view is that you can be saved, and if you commit one big, bad, awful, ugly sin very deliberately, then you can never repent again. You're lost. This view was actually held by a number of people in the early church, most famously by a man named Tertullian, who, uh, like, who said sexual sin is unforgivable. It's the unpardonable sin. And some others said if you're persecuted and you deny the faith, or if you're persecuted and you um, let them burn the church or burn the Bibles or something like that, you can never, ever repent again. I call it the rigorist position because they have excessive rigor. They're too tough. and don't have enough mercy and love in them. The idea then would be, though, a deliberate major sin amounts to a renunciation of the faith. That's one view. My answer to that is help. Uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I, when I read the Bible, you know, anyone who turns to the Lord, anyone who repents, uh, can be saved, can be redeemed, can be forgiven. God's love is mercy is full and free. The second view is to soften the passage a little bit. This is what most Arminians do with it. They say, well, you know, it says it's impossible to repent. What it means is they just say, it's impossible for man. Let's add two little words there. It's impossible for man. I said, well, listen, you know, you start adding two little words here, add two little words there, pretty soon the Bible's your own Bible. You know, thou shalt not steal unless you really want to. That's only... It's only four words, you know. If we're really not free to start adding two or three little words. Um, it is impossible. It doesn't say for man. It says it is impossible. Uh, Arminians sometimes also say, well, what it means is it's almost impossible. But it doesn't say that. What it says is it is impossible. And so let's deal, you know, if we, if we believe that God has spoken the word, let's give it the dignity of not adding little words here and there that make uh, life easier for us. If he'd wanted to say almost impossible, he would have said it. If he'd wanted to say it is almost impossible for a man, but God can do it, he would have said it. But he didn't say that. What he said is, it is impossible. So I don't accept that one. The third view, <clears throat> which I believe is correct, is to say this passage is looking at things with a pastor's eye. And with a pastor's eye, you will see people who by every conceivable indication are Christians. In fact, I would dare say that almost certainly there is someone in this room who is led to the Lord by somebody or discipled or nurtured or led along the way in a profound way, and that someone now no longer professes to be a Christian. Raise your hand if, if that describes you. I hope I'm not going to see six hands. I see, I see three hands. Okay, we have four hands, three hands. And I've got a big group, but every, almost every time I ask this question of a group that's of any size, a hand or two or three or four goes up. That is to say, there are people who by every appearance seem to have been enlightened, really taught by the Word. They seem to have partaken in the life of the Holy Spirit. And the powers of the age to come, that is to say, well, kind of like Judas, maybe, uh, you know, he performed some miracles, wonderful things happened through their ministry, and so forth. By all appearances, they were a disciple, and then they rejected all. For that person, repentance is impossible, he says. Now, the, the question is, of course, I don't want to make it too easy on us, is that person really saved? And see, this is where we say God is the judge. We don't know. We can say, we never know the condition of anyone's soul. We can say to somebody, 
it sure looks like they belong, you know, and we, in every way I'll treat them and assume and I won't question it, but I don't know the soul of another. And, of course, there are other people who look like they're not regenerate, but they are. And there are people who actually look like they've apostatized, but they haven't. It looks like this passage describes them, but it doesn't. When I was a pastor, one of my friends in the church was a dedicated Christian for the first 28 years of his life. And then, don't ask me why, he ceased practicing Christian. He ceased reading the Bible, ceased going to church, became a ruthless businessman, made all his people work seven days a week. He was proud of it. He was well known as an unsavory character. It was a small town. And, you know, people said, you know, don't cross. I'm not going to say his name because somebody may someday see this on tape and knows him. Uh, you know, don't cross, you know, Joe Slobovnik, which is not his name. As he's a nasty man, he'll make you pay the price. Don't trust him, he won't keep his word. Then at the age of 54, he said, what have I been doing? Came back to church. Joined my church when he was 55. He's been walking with the Lord now for 15 more years. Very strange. Doesn't happen much. It looked like he'd apostatized, but he hadn't. We never know. But we do know this. We do know that there are people who look in every conceivable way like Christians. And they turn away from it. And that, my friends, is if they really do turn away from it after coming that close, um, I do believe that, that is, you know, that's part of what the unpardonable sin is about. I think that's what he's talking about here. About the person who knows exactly what they're rejecting. So that I've seen Christ, I've seen the testimony, I've been around Christians, I've had every opportunity... When I say, no, I'm not a Christian, I deny it, I repudiate it, it's not a sin of ignorance. They know exactly what they're doing. Now, we never know who it is who's done that. But there is such a thing, there is such a sin, as definitively, violently, with full knowledge, saying, I want no part of God, I want no part of His grace, I want no part of His gospel. And if somebody does that, then it is impossible for them to come to salvation. Now then, what is, what is happening? What is this passage meant to do in our lives? What it's meant to do is a couple of things. One, it explains things to us. It explains the way, you know, the way in which uh, people sin. It's, there are three kinds of sin. There are three classes of sin. Sins of ignorance, sins of laziness, and there are deliberate sins. And they are, they're very different in their scope and in their consequence. So that it, it teaches us something for, we might say, our mind's sake. Uh, second, it is an instrumental warning. That is to say, the very warning about the consequences of apostasy are, are meant, the very warning is meant for the Hebrews to keep them from committing that sin. It's meant to wake them up. You know, you're getting dull, you're being lazy and lethargic, you're not discerning. Let me tell you, he's saying, keep this up. This is where it could lead. Now, he is not saying, again, he's saying, I am convinced of better things, verse 9. I'm convinced of better things for you. But one of the ways in which he believes better things will happen for them is by heeding the warning. Look where laziness can end. Don't go there. God will keep you from going there. Don't go there. That's what he's saying. The warning is, is meant to deliver us. Or meant to, you know, it's a little bit like saying danger, you know, cliff, road out, something like that. It's, an, it, it's, a, it's a means. The warning, as harsh as it is, is a means of grace. He presents to us, even the real Christians, the possibility of apostatizing, even though it will never happen. A real Christian will never actually do it. I say that because of, you know, clearer passages of the Bible. If somebody wants to ask me questions, say, what about this and this? I'll confess to you, I have wrestled mightily with this passage. I have not always had the same exact same view of this passage. I keep on trying to read more and refine a little bit. It's a hard passage, and one of the rules of Bible interpretation is you don't stake everything on, a, on an obscure passage. You go to clear passages. And I believe that the clear teaching of the Bible elsewhere is that God keeps his own, that persevere to the end, that his grace uh, is such that you know, he, he keeps us in his hand and, 
and all that the Father has given to the Son will come to him, and none will be lost, and so forth. You know, I'm just running through a string of, of Bible verses about this, that God does keep his people. But the possibility of falling away can actually be good for it. The mentioning that, even though it would never happen, mentioning it, this, I'll call it a real hypothesis. It's only hypothetical, but it's presented in very real or realistic terms to warn us. Say, beware, watch out, wake up, especially in the midst of persecution. Don't go down this path. What should we say then um, in terms of making sense or making use of this passage? By all appearances, there are, there are people who seem to be Christians and then they repudiate the faith. This is, if you minister long enough, you'll meet somebody like this. That's a very difficult case. Uh, ontologically, I'm saying I don't believe there's anyone who is regenerated and is ultimately lost. People appear to be regenerated and are lost. The warning prevents us from falling into sin, and it teaches us, um, it teaches us, encourages us to persevere. There are people who don't persevere. Uh, you can think of some in the Bible, um, Ananias and Sapphira. Started off well, but they didn't persevere. Simon Magus had a religious splurge, but he didn't persevere. Uh, Hymenaeus, Alexander, and Demas are three who are mentioned by Paul who did not persevere. There's another one, by the way, John Mark, who seems like he gave it up, but then he came back, right? So that's, uh, that's a bit of, of good news that you never really know the final end of the matter. Um, <clears throat> there are people who receive the word of God with joy, Matthew chapter 13, but they have no root. There are people who say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy, perform miracles in your name? Absolutely, but Jesus said, I never knew you. So there are people who, who get a taste of religion or a veneer or an experience or something like that who are never actually, there's really a lot of teaching about this in the Bible, who are never actually uh, members of the body of the redeemed. But for, for all that, you know, from a human perspective, it seems like people are saved and lost. From God's perspective, you know, that's, that's where we get things like in Romans 8.28, all things work together for good for those who love God, called according to his purpose. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's all one. If he calls and he predestines and he justifies, you will also come to glory. That's God's perspective. He sees things as they really are. We don't. He's the one who sees clear that all whom the Father, all, who, all whom he gives to Jesus, will come to him. And we will persevere to the end. That's a divine perspective, which we can't actually clearly, of course, ever see. Pastorally speaking, then, I'm saying to you, give up the idea of trying to read souls and determine where somebody's soul is. But understand, you will have to deal with, with real problems like this. And you'll have, indeed, the heartbreak. Many of you will have the heartbreak of watching somebody step away from the faith. What do you do? Well, you distinguish sins. This is one thing we can do. You, too, I'm just repeating what ground I've covered. If you want to lead people to persevere, I'm now talking to you as leaders. If you want to lead people to persevere, one of the crucial things is to distinguish sins, as we've already seen. Distinguish between sins of ignorance. What do you do? Instruct. As I did with my daughter. You broke the dish. Let me talk to you about dishes. Let me talk to you about obedience and disobedience. Teach people. If somebody commits a sin by accident, don't say, oh, well, it was an accident. It doesn't count. Teach them. Explain it to them. So they can go to maturity. <clears throat> for yourself and for others, second, notice a sin that comes from lethargy. Laziness, indifference. I've actually heard, maybe some of you have too, people say things like, I'm too old to give up that sin. Yikes. From Christians. I actually heard on the floor of a presbytery meeting. I know I shouldn't be talking this way, but I've been talking this way for too many years to stop now. That's sad. That's very sad. To know, and, and you know, that is a very dangerous thing. When people are indifferent to their own sin. Now, it was, it was, you might say, a small sin. He was speaking intemperately. 
and maybe with a little bit of just a little bit of judgmentalism. But the fact that it's a relatively small sin doesn't matter. He knew he was committing a sin, and he didn't care what he said. <clears throat> and that's a deadly thing. Um, of course, we have to uh, be very strong about people who are, who are thinking about committing a deliberate sin. I've uh, unfortunately had a conversation with a man who was thinking about an affair. And he said, now, you know, if I, if I have this affair, God will forgive me. Because he has to forgive. He always has to forgive, right? And I said, well, sort of. But if you deliberately commit a sin like this, the truth is we would have to call into question even your understanding. If you're sitting here talking to your pastor saying, I know I can get some goodies out of the gospel of God's grace. I know that I can go indulge myself for six months. If I get tired of it, then I'll be forgiven. And I say, you, I, you know, I have to wonder if you've understood what your salvation is all about. To be very strong with that. And even so, even when we're strong with that, even so, I tell you, the last word is always grace. We saw it once in chapter 3 and 4, which had the, the, the near climax. We thought it was the climax when he said we're all you know, naked and in a neck hole before God. But no, it wasn't the climax. The climax was, so come to the throne of grace. Where there's always mercy and grace for our time of need. Right? And then in chapter 6, 5 and 6, we're working through all these sins and it keeps getting worse and worse and they're not listening and they're indifferent and, and uh, you know, they're, they're in danger of crucifying Christ again and, and submitting him to public. But then he says quickly, no, but that's not what's going to happen. I have better hopes of you. I know that God is not unjust. He will not forget. You're going to uh, persevere to the end. God has sworn. He will fulfill his covenant. That's what happens in the following verses. So the word of grace is always, the word of mercy and love is always the last word. There is a place for warning. There is a place for rebuke. But it is never the last word in the Christian faith. Thanks for listening to this worldwide classroom lecture from Covenant Theological Seminary. Looking for more resources? Access more than 1,000 downloadable articles, sermons, and more at resourcesforlifeonline.com. Search resources by keyword, author, or Bible reference. Grace-focused, Christ-centered resources, free to you. resourcesforlifeonline.com.